people of faith, hope, and love. And we pray this all in your son Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as I was thinking about this week, um, we're going to be in John chapter 10 in just a few moments. And as I was thinking about the week and, and what we're going to talk about this morning, I, I was thinking about springtime and, and um, sun and baseball. Um, I'm coaching t-ball this year, which is, I, I coached high school baseball for four years, and coaching t-ball is nothing like that. <laughs> I don't even know what to tell these kids, except don't hit each other with the bat, and please stop dumping sand in that kid's hair, and would you please come here, and, and I'm not sure they hear my voice at all. Um, I don't know what voice they're listening to, but it's not mine. I don't know if it's anyone else's either. I think it's the voice in their own head. And so I was thinking this week about my own t-ball experience, and I remember the first year that I played, and I vaguely have this memory, but, but it's been told to me by my parents so many times that I now know I know it for certain. I remember, or they tell me, I'm not sure which now, uh, that the first year I played, I was five, and, and they decided about the second game that they needed to get something to drink from the concession stand, and so they started to walk when I was standing in, in right field. You know, that's where they put everybody when you're five and you don't know what you're doing. You go to right field. So I'm standing in right field pulling dandelions, and I see my parents walk towards the concession stand, and I decide at that point that I should go see what they're doing. And so I ran off the field and ran to them, and they looked at me like, what are you doing? You're supposed to be playing the game. Well, where are you going? We're going to the concession stand. Well, I want something. No, you're supposed to play. Go back on the field. Well, can I have some candy? Maybe after the game. Go play. So they sent me back out in the field, and they laughed because the next year something clicked and baseball made sense in my life then. And, and so fast forward a few years, and I was 12 years old. And I played on a team that was, that was a little better than the Bad News Bears, but not much. Um, and we played what they call pony rules, and so there's a drop third strike. If you know baseball, it means if just because you strike someone out doesn't mean they're out because if the catcher can't hold on the ball, they can run to first base. So sure enough, our catcher could not catch anything. Um, I was pitching one game, and, and I, there was, this is a pretty good game. I had four strikeouts in two different innings. It's kind of impressive because there's only three outs in an inning. So there was one inning. I, started, I walked two guys and struck another guy, and they dropped the ball, so he got to first base because we couldn't throw anybody out, so everybody stole. And, and this dad started yelling. Ironically, he was the catcher's dad, and he uh, started yelling at me from the stands. And he... He started saying all kinds of things and, and um, stuff that you probably shouldn't say to a 12-year-old playing baseball. And, and, and I threw one more, and there's another drop third strike, and another guy got a base, and, and, I, and he said something like, the other team must be paying him more than we are. And that was like the last straw. And my dad's a very gracious, kind, quiet man. Um, he didn't say anything. He does blow up, but he didn't dare. And my uncle is more volatile than my father, and he was there, and he didn't say anything. But I did. I looked at this kid's dad, and I said, would you just shut up? I don't advocate that, and I'm sorry if your children heard that, and you don't say that in your home. We don't say it in ours either, so um, apologize to them for me later. And he got really quiet, and he started to say something else, and my dad said, I think you've said quite enough. My dad's six foot four. He's a big man. The guy didn't say anything else. Um, after the game, I, I was expecting to get in a little bit of trouble. My dad says, you probably shouldn't talk to adults like that. And the truth is, Aaron, I should have said something before you ever had to. But I was listening to the wrong voice, right? Our coaches then dug out yelling words of encouragement. They weren't helpful. 
teach our catcher to catch. That would have been helpful, but, but I listened to the wrong voice. The one voice that was loud, I heard the most. I wish I could say that was the end of me listening to voices when I played athletics. It wasn't. When I was in high school, I played tennis, and we were in the state finals, and we were in the semifinal match in the morning. Furthest our school had ever gone. And so we, we are in this match, and I'm playing this kid, and I win the first set, and I'm up in the second, and my coach gave me some advice. In hindsight, he apologized because he should have never given it. He said, this guy's missing everything. Just hit it right down the middle. The problem was he was missing everything because I was running him all over the court. When I hit it right down the middle, he didn't miss anything. Next thing I know, I'm down in the third set, and there's a fan who's yelling who just so badly wants me to win, and he's yelling louder than everyone else, and it's like this urgent yell and and it just really was driving me nuts, and that's all I could hear, and it's all I could think about, which is not what you should do. And I turned and I said, Harry, would you just shut up? That time, my dad talked to me after the game was over, after the match was over. It wasn't nice. In fact, I apologized to Harry before the day was over. In fact, I sent him an email a couple months ago apologizing again because it still bothers me to this day. See, the problem for many of us is we listen to voices, but usually the wrong voices. And sometimes they're not even bad voices, because Harry was saying nothing wrong. He was actually trying to encourage me. But I should have been listening to my coach's voice, or an inner voice, or some other voice but his in the moment. And this is not true for us so often. We, we know there are voices that we want to listen to in our lives, but we find ourselves listening to voices that aren't all that constructive. They're not helpful. They don't build us up. We begin, maybe it's even our own voice. We say things like, I'm just not that good, or I'm not worth as much. Or we begin to hear voices, and we hear people say, well, you know, you're not going to amount to anything, or whatever we might hear, and we begin to believe it and think it's true, even though it probably isn't. Or maybe, if we're honest, we're so shaped by what we listen to. So I, this, is, this, is, well, this is a political statement. I don't really care. Uh, if you listen to only conservative political talk radio, you're going to think only like a conservative political talk radio host. If you listen to only liberal talk radio, you're going to think only like that. Just in case you're curious, if you only listen to one station, you're going to repeat what you hear. See, if we're not careful, what we listen to shapes us in ways that are counter to the culture of Christ. If we're not careful, we listen to things that shape us differently than Jesus desires to shape us. So it's fascinating that in John chapter 10, verse 22, we're going to be there in just a moment, that Jesus asked a question. And he responds in such a way that, that begs us to ask the question, what voice are we listening to? What voice is shaping us? What are the words that we live by? Who are the people that speak into our lives? And so I invite you to stand this morning as we read from John chapter 10, uh, verse 22. <clears throat> then came the Feast of Dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was in the temple area walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you were the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The word of the Lord. Be 
You may be seated. Now this text enters into the story in a particular place in time in history, and John wants to make sure we don't miss that. He, he mentions that it's winter, and it's the, the Feast of Dedication. And if you don't know what the Feast of Dedication, a more common name for us would be Hanukkah. And Hanukkah is the, the, the time in which they celebrate the rededication, hence the festival of dedication, of the temple. And they're walking in Solomon's Colonnade, which is about the size of five football fields, and so they're walking through this area, and Jesus asked this question during this festival, and, and just so you know some background on the festival, it would have been um, to celebrate in 164 B.C., or I'm sorry, yeah, 164 B.C., um, no, 170 B.C., sorry, 170 B.C., Antiochus entered into, the Syrian king entered into Jerusalem. And he tried to convert everyone who was Jewish to become Greek. And the goal in that was that he wanted to eradicate the Jewish religion because he wanted everyone to, to buy into Greek culture. Well, Greek culture believes in multiple gods and lots of things like that. And, and he tried very peaceful ways to do that at first, but the problem was the Jews kind of relented. They, they, they didn't want to be a part of that. So then he tried less peaceful ways, and the army came in. They drove people out of the temple. The place in which they believed the Spirit of God dwelled became a, a brothel. The altar where they offered sacrifices to God became the place where Antiochus began offering up pigs. If you know anything about Jewish culture, they, they kind of want nothing to do with pigs. So the temple was desecrated to the place in which it was just appalling to all those who were Jewish. So Judas Maccabeus and others led a revolt, and they drove out the Syrians. And so for a hundred years, the Maccabean family became king of the Jews. Until the Romans came, but... This festival, this Hanukkah celebration, this celebration of the dedication of the temple, the rededication of the temple, was a celebration in which they, they honored this idea that, that light came, that God brought light. And so Jesus, in the midst of this, comes in and he's asked this question, because in the middle of all celebrations in the Jewish world, all the thought underlying all of them was this, when will the Messiah come? What will he look like? Who will he be? And how will we know? So those who were with Jesus asked him this question, tell us plainly, will you, just, will you just tell us simply, are you the Messiah or not? And Jesus responds in a way he says, well, I've already told you. They can, no, you haven't. See, some who asked the question were people who were earnestly wanted to know, are you him? I mean, are you really him? Others had already made up their mind that he wasn't the one they were looking for, and so they wanted him to be killed because they didn't like what he was doing, and so they were trying to trap him in this question, and he, he's really not falling for it. See, those who knew it wasn't him had expected the Messiah to come, much like Judas Maccabeus, to drive out the Romans, or to come even like Antiochus the king, and to take over. But we know in hindsight that Jesus, the Messiah, didn't come in that way. And so Jesus answers their question. I did tell you. See, the works that I do, I do them in my Father's name. See, Jesus answers their question by pointing out that his deeds and his words match up. That his action matches the words that he's spoken. And so often, I think this is why people are turned off from the Christian faith, because Often, our words don't match our deeds. Often, we say one thing and we act out another way. The reality for us of a belief, 
belief without action that follows. That belief isn't really belief at all. It may be cognitive recognition, but it isn't this idea that our life has been radically transformed by a certain way of living. And Jesus was very particular in telling us to live as people of the kingdom of God. All the Gospels point to that. That you're to live into the way of Jesus. And he tells them over and over again what that should look like. And so these people ask him, well, are you him? Are you the ones to come? Because you don't look like what we expected. And he responds to them with this. He said, my sheep know my voice. You don't know me because you don't know my voice. See, at first glance, we think, well, how is that really hopeful for us? I mean, if we don't know his voice, how do we know if we know the right voice? And sheep, I, I don't know about you, but being equated to sheep doesn't always sound so great because sheep aren't the most intelligent animals you could pick. There's a lot other animals. I mean, I'd rather be a monkey than a sheep. I mean, I, I would pick something here rather than a sheep. But there's something about a shepherd and a sheep and the way that he herds them together. He's already told them a story. Not, the, not all those who were here would have heard the other story, but the other story is about if, if there's a shepherd that had 100 sheep and one went missing, he would leave the 99 to go get the one. Jesus keeps making this equation for them to see that that God's going to keep coming after you no matter what, because this is who God is. The shepherd keeps calling out after them. He keeps calling out, and the sheep begin to know his voice. And if you know his voice, then you find his life, his life that is for this life and for the life to come, this eternal life, this gift of life. So we can sing songs that there's no sorrow that heaven can't heal. This idea that God comes in and begins to reshape, and he says, if you are my sheep, you would know my voice. My sheep listen to my voice. His sheep, and they know him. He knows their name. And then he says this, the sheep listen and follow. Now, I kind of got stuck there a little bit this week. Do we listen and do we follow? I mean, do we, we, we sometimes listen to the words of Jesus, we sometimes read the Bible, or we maybe go to church, or we maybe listen to Christian radio, but, but do we really follow Jesus? Do we listen and then live into that? Do our words indeed match up? Do we listen to him in such a way that we find this eternal life that he invites us into? The kind of life that's reflected in both belief and action, do we live into that or not? And then he says something that's probably helpful for us. He says, no one will snatch my sheep from my hand. Well, that's good. I mean, that's good. And then in case we we are confused by that, he, he says, well, I want you to understand that no one will snatch my sheep from my father's hand either. In other words, the father and I are one. This is an important theme in this text, that the father and I are one, that Jesus and the father are intricately connected as one, and that nothing can separate us from them. Nothing can take us from them. The scary part for us, though, is this, that he never says that we can't walk away. Nothing will take us from God, but he never, this relationship between us and the Father. Now, it's not like we should be scared of that and live into this idea that, whew, am I walking away or am I walking towards him? But the reality is for us, that's true in our everyday lives. Are we listening to his voice? Are we being more shaped by the voice of Jesus or more shaped by the voices of others? Are we more shaped by the kingdom of God Are we following after him? Are we living into other patterns of life that take us in different directions? But he wants us to know that nothing can separate us from him. There's no outside force. There's no person. There's no 
work of any evil in the world that can take us from his hand. But that he and the Father are one. So this picture of God, this picture of God that I think we sometimes have, we, we begin thinking about God this way. We, we get Jesus, we, we loving, we think about him, give up his life, we're, we're kind of in for that, but we're not so sure about God. I mean, you read the Old Testament, there's some, some weird stuff in there. And one of the things I'm going to say is nothing new. In fact, Jesus is the first one to say it. But it sometimes is hard for us to hear. That we can say nothing about the Father that we cannot say about the Son. I'm going to say that again because I hope that sinks in. We can say nothing about the Father that we can't say about the Son. There's a reason that Jesus keeps saying all throughout the Gospels, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Or other times he says this, he reminds us, I and the Father are one. The Father is in me and I am in him. And I'm in you, and he is in you, and you are in us. This relational aspect of God with us, that when we're in relationship with him, when we're following after him, when we're hearing his voice, that we do know the Father. Now, I don't want to be dismissive here. God still desires justice. He still calls his people to faithfulness. But we begin to see in the picture of Jesus this idea that God is relational in a way that maybe we have misunderstood as people. We've often thought of God as way out there, but Jesus comes as the embodiment of God and says, listen, God isn't way out there. God comes here in the messiness of our lives. God comes here in the brokenness that we see. God comes here in the midst of our everyday struggles and says, I'm with you. Hear my voice. Follow after me. There's this unity that happens among Jesus and the Father and us. It's why he, all throughout the Gospels, Jesus wants us to understand that he and the Father are one and we're invited into this intimate relationship. It's why our souls sometimes long for something more. It's why there's something in us that desires this connection to the divine. It's why God so desperately wants to know us and wants us to know him. It's been his desire since the beginning of creation that we would choose to live into relationship with him, that his love for us would be the defining characteristic of our lives. But so often, we've listened to the wrong voices. we followed, uh, it's maybe like Tom and Jerry. You know when Tom, the cat, has the two little angel and demon cats on his shoulders on both sides, right? You remember this cartoon? If you don't, I'm so sorry, you missed out. And Tom can't decide, am I going to follow this angel cat or am I going to follow this demon cat? And too often he chooses the demon and so often that's the way it is in our lives. We know there's a particular voice leading us in a particular direction that gives life. But so often we know that but we still turn in the wrong direction. Because we're not listening to the right voice. See, yesterday, um, yesterday morning to early afternoon was like daddy and kids time. And so I took the kids, and we went to the library and to the bookstore, and, and then we did what we often do. We ended up at the mall, because uh, they have a play place, and right in the middle, in case you didn't know that, and they can run in circles. It's great, perfect before nap time. Um, but we usually stop at, at McDonald's and buy, like, dollar cheeseburgers, and they can have dollar cheeseburgers. They sit outside the play place, and so we stopped and got them a cheeseburger, and we're sitting there. Three of us are sitting there, and, and uh, we're done, and they want to go play. So we need to throw our trash away, and then you guys can go play. And so we all get up, and we start walking towards the trash can, and it wasn't really near our table. It was about 25 feet away. And I start walking, and Gracie stops, and she's mesmerized. You know those 
games that take your quarters that will take all your quarters because you'll never win? You know those kind of games? And she's mesmerized by that, and she's looking at it and trying to figure out if she can play it without any money because I never have cash, so she's not going to play it because I gave her a quarter. And, and so she's, she's looking and touching it and, and doing all those kinds of things, and I, I go over and throw stuff away. And all of a sudden, I see it on her face. She realizes Isaac and I are not standing there with her. I've watched her this whole time, not worried about her at all. But she doesn't know that her dad's still watching her. And all of a sudden, I look at her face, and I see her face begin to change. Fear creeps in. She's looking around, and she doesn't see me, and I see what's beginning to happen. If she doesn't see me soon, she's going to start crying. And she yells out, Dad! Daddy! There's a couple hundred people in the courtyard at this point. It's actually pretty busy. And from about 15 feet away, I just said, Gracie! She turns and looks. No big deal. Dad's right there. Face changes. She runs over and says, can we play now? Yeah, go play. But she knew my voice. It didn't matter that there were a couple hundred people nearby. It didn't matter that there were conversations happening all around. She knew my voice. And when she heard my voice, it changed her whole countenance. It changed her face. She went from, from this unrest, this sense of fear, to a sense of peace in just one moment when she heard the voice of her father. And this is what God desires for us. To hear his voice, to have a sense of peace that can only come when we hear him speak. It's what Jesus came for. To enter into our world, into our lives, and say to you and to I, hey, hear my voice. Hear my voice and find life. Hear my voice and find peace. Hear my voice and find comfort in the midst of chaos. There's no sorrow or pain or hurt that heaven can't heal because heaven has now come in me. This is what Jesus came to say to us. But how do we listen to that voice? In a world of competing voices, how do we listen to that voice over the rest? Now the truth is, we often listen to all kinds of voices. I, I joke, not, I said, jokingly, but seriously, how we listen to political talk radio, it can shape us. Maybe we listen to music that shapes us. Maybe it's family members who are well-intentioned that shape us in poor directions. See, if we're not careful, we, we can be around things that aren't even necessarily bad, but they can still shape us in directions that take us counter to where Jesus is. If we're not careful, we can listen to voices that, that aren't the right voice. I've already told you, I struggle to listen in the midst of chaos. I heard the wrong voices. I heard... Chad's dad yelling from the bleachers. I heard Harry yelling from the stands, right? We all have Chad's dad and Harry's in our life. If we're not careful, we're listening to the wrong voice at the wrong time, even when they're well-intentioned. So how do we hear his voice? I mean, I could tell you that the simple ways, the easy ways that we all know. You know, we, we say, well, read your Bible, read the scriptures, pray. Those are good. For some of us, we find that we hear God speak in solitude and silence. Maybe it's walking in the wilderness. Maybe it's in the woods. Maybe it's as we look at the sunset over the lake. Whatever it is we find in the middle of nature, we find God's voice speak to us. For some, we find it in, in working with our hands. We find that as we're doing something, we sense God. But I want to say that I think the way that we most often hear God's voice is in the context of community. See, the way we most often hear God's voice is together. The reason Jesus says to us that the way my people will be known is by the way that they love one another. 
See, there's something that happens when we gather together. There's something that happens when we gather on Sunday mornings. This is a place that often we find that God speaks. This is a place often we hear His voice. Sometimes it's in your community group or a Sunday school class in which you find yourself gathered with people around the table or over cups of coffee in which you talk and someone will say something and you'll swear it was God speaking to you. Because here's the way Jesus works. He speaks through us to one another. So often we hear his voice truly through other people. We practice listening when we serve together. Have you ever talked to someone who's gone on a mission trip or they've gone at some work and witness project somewhere and they go, everyone goes, and this is the same story here almost universally when they come back. Well, I went to try to be a blessing to other people, but they bless me more than I bless them. We hear God speak through other people in context of community when we're together. So we practice listening when we offer up hospitality, when we invest in others' lives. A local church is to be the place where our people gather. We gather to go out, but we gather as a reminder that God invites us into, into community. It's a reminder that we gather together because we're being shaped by all kinds of voices all around us, but we gather to find the singular voice of Jesus and hope that it's the shaping voice of our lives. See, relationships are really hard. It's why he says that know my people by the way they love one another. Have you noticed that love is hard? Love takes effort, sometimes sacrifice, sometimes putting it away, sometimes just being inconvenienced. Love takes investment in people. It's why I love this story that Bob Goff tells. Um, He tells it about about really love. And he tells a story. He was a a teenager. He was a junior in high school and decided he was going to drop out of high school. He wasn't a very good student. In fact, his parents were educators and and they, they said, well, yeah, you know, um, they, they kept leaving pamphlets of, like, trades that you could do for a living around tables. Like, they went taught to college, went taught to high school, but they didn't think their son was smart enough for college, so they kept leaving tracks around the house to remind her, hey, you know, these are good options for you, son. Um, and so he thought, forget all this, I'm just dropping out of high school, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move to Yosemite National Forest, and I'm going to live off the land, and I'm going to work at some place, I'm going to ski. There had been a guy named Randy who had been investing in Bob's life, and, and Bob showed up at Randy's house just to tell him what he was doing and where he was going, and Randy was one of the local youth pastors that he had connected with Bob. And Randy knocked on his, or Bob knocked on Randy's door, and Randy came to the door, and, and Bob said, hey, here's what I'm doing. I'm heading out. I'm leaving. I'm driving there today. And uh, so Randy looked at me kind of funny, but, but he saw something in me in that moment. Um, he said, well, Bob, give me just one second. I'll be right back. Went back in the house for five, ten minutes, and Bob said, at this point, I'm feeling kind of weird staying on this guy's doorstep. When's he going to come back out? And, and he comes back out with a backpack full of stuff and a sleeping bag and says, all right, let's go. Bob says, no, I don't think you understand. He goes, well, I'm not going to stay forever, but I'll, I'll make sure you get settled before I come back. How are you going to get back? I'll, I'll find a way. So they hop in this little Volkswagen car. They drive the six hours to the the park. They get there and it's late and so they sleep in the car the first night, but the next night it's too cold. And the next night, the next day, they, they're looking for a job. And so Bob goes from place to place to place. Every resort is not hiring. The park ranger looks at him and he says, I want to work here. And he's like, you're a 17-year-old dropout. Why would I hire you? I mean, you know, everything about this is not going well for him. 
So the next night they, sleep, they sneak into this tent because they, they didn't think to bring anything like that. I mean, Randy was lucky he had a sleeping bag, and so they sneak into this tent on the campground hoping that no one's using it, and they're not, and they, they spend the night there, and the next day they go hiking. Talk a little trash about who's the better hiker, and, and as the story continues, that um, Bob goes back into town trying to find a job. Once again, every place is not hiring. Why would they hire the next day when they weren't the day before? At the end of the day, Bob realizes, I'm not going to get a job here. I'm here in the non-peak season. There's no tourists yet. They don't need anyone. And Randy says, come on, I'll drive back. Or Randy's, Randy and Bob get in the car. Six-hour drive home. Very few words are said. All of a sudden, the roads begin to get familiar again, and they pull into Randy's driveway. Randy says, well, why won't you come inside for a second? There, um, I want to pick up the end of this story. On the floor, I noticed a stack of plates and some wrapping paper, a coffee maker, some glasses. On the couch, there was a microwave half in a box. I didn't understand at first. Had Randy just had a birthday? And his girlfriend was at the house, or so Bob thought. Was it his girlfriend's? A microwave seemed like a weird way to celebrate someone's arrival into the world. I knew Randy wasn't moving because... There wouldn't be wrapping paper. Then from around the corner, the other half of this couple bounded out and threw her arms around Randy. Welcome home, honey. Then the nickel dropped. I felt both sick and choked up in an instant. I realized that these were wedding presents on the floor. Randy and his girlfriend had just gotten married. When I had knocked on Randy's door on that Sunday morning, Randy didn't see just a high school kid who had disrupted the beginning of his marriage. He saw a kid who was about to jump the tracks instead of spending the early days of his marriage with his bride. He spent it with me, sneaking into the back of a tent. Why? It's because Randy loved me. He saw the need and he did something about it. He didn't just say he was for me or with me. He was actually present with me. What I learned from Randy changed my view permanently about what it meant to have a friendship with Jesus. I learned that faith isn't about knowing all of the right stuff or obeying a list of rules. It's something more something more costly because it involves being present and making a sacrifice. Perhaps that's why Jesus sometimes called Emmanuel, God with us. I think that's what God had in mind for Jesus to be present, to just be with us. It's also what he has in mind for us when it comes to other people. The world can make you think that love can be picked up at a garage sale or enveloped in a Hallmark card. But the kind of love that God created and demonstrated is a costly one because it involves sacrifice and presence. It's a love that operates more like a sign language than being spoken outright. What I learned from Randy about the brand of love Jesus offers is that it's more about presence than undertaking a project. It's a brand of love that doesn't just think about good things or agree with them or talk about them. What I learned from Randy reinforced the simple truth that continues to weave itself in the tapestry of every great story. Love does. See, in this text, we see this picture where Jesus says that my sheep know my voice. And they follow my voice. And the voice of Jesus says this, love one another. Love is messy. It looks all different kinds of ways. Love is inconvenient. But we see also in this text that Jesus says that I and the Father are one. And I am in him, and he is in me, and I am in you, and you are in him. And my sheep know my voice. 
An embodiment of being one of Christ's followers, his sheep, is to be defined by love. For love to be the defining characteristic of our lives. For it to be the kind of thing that we say we embody this idea of connection and community and unity. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you should love others. It's this radical way of living that God invites us into to be his people who find life in this moment and life to come. To be so shaped by this message of redemption and reconciliation and hope that we can sing songs that say there's no thing on this earth. There's nothing in our lives that heaven can't heal. And Jesus says to us, the kingdom of heaven has come. It's why we celebrate in the season of Easter that, that God has come with us and near us and to us. It's why we say over and over again that the tomb is empty, that God and Jesus is the embodiment of love for you and I. It's why we say, what voice are you listening to? What voice shapes your life? And this morning, if you don't know Jesus, if it isn't the voice that shapes your life, then before you leave here, choose to follow that voice. The one that brings hope in the midst of hopelessness, the one that that helps us when our soul longs for something more. This morning, I invite the, the band to come once again, and we're going to sing the song, Come Just As You Are. And I invite everyone to stand with me at this time, and we're going to stand together, and we're going to sing these words again. And maybe this morning, if for the first time, or the second or the third, you recognize your life is being shaped not by the voice of God, but you want to be shaped by Jesus' voice today. And I invite you as we sing um, to come and kneel and pray. And you can pray a simple prayer. Jesus, I want to know your voice. I want to follow you with my life. And if you come and pray that prayer, actually I have a book I want to give you so you can learn to hear his voice in your life every single day. His voice that brings life. If you know that voice, if you've heard that voice, if, that, if your life you desire for it to be defined by that, then we need to learn to love in ways that are inconveniencing to us. Ways like the way Randy loved Bob that radically reshaped Bob's life so that Bob would write a book 25, 30 years later that shaped the lives of so many others. Father, we help us in these moments today that we will choose you over and over again. That we'll listen to your voice above all the other voices of our life and that your voice will be the one that, that we hear. Help us to recognize you desire for us to live in community with one another, in unity with each other. And so for us to do that, we have to choose you over and over and over again. To try to be still enough in such a way and live our lives in such a way that we hear your voice speak to us. Father, I pray this morning for that person who's yet to know you. That there's something in their soul that longs for you and we, each of us have found ourselves in that place. And so this morning, if that's you, if, if you're not sure if this Jesus thinks for you, but you want to know him, you want to believe that he can heal, that he can give you hope in this life, and if that's you today, I'd invite you to come and kneel at these places that we call altars places where we say to God that I'm yours. You're mine. I want to live my life for you. Or maybe today you find yourself saying, I've said yes to you before, but I really do need to say I want to love as you love. 
but I need to listen more clearly to your voice. And if that's you, maybe you want to come and kneel and pray as well. But as we sing these words to the song, Father, may it be that they are true for our lives, that the sorrows we face and find, you don't promise that we'll escape them, but you promise you'll help heal us in the midst of them. You'll take our brokenness and you'll restore us. You don't promise it'll be in an instant, but you promise that your presence. So Father, help us be a people of love who love you, who choose you. Pray these things in Jesus' name.